you know, one of the other things that the piece made me think about is like, how did my dad get to running? Well, he got to running as like a rebellion against his father, right? Because his father had made him feel bad about sports. How did I get to running? Well, it's the opposite, right? It was like following my father, right? Because it made me feel good about running. So what is my running? What effect is it going to have on my children? Will it be like, you know, my grandfather's effect on my father? Will they be like, I hate running. I don't want anything to do with this. Like, are they going to write a tell-all memoir about their, you know, weird, obsessed, you know, oatmeal <laughs> eating father who like made them feel shitty? Um, or are they going to become runners themselves too? And like, well, I'll be drinking beet juice together in 15 years, right? Welcome to The Common Threads. During each episode, we'll travel through time to explore the childhoods, influences, and habits of some of the world's leading athletes, industry experts, and entrepreneurs. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app, and visit ProKit, where we bring together the best interviews, podcasts, and articles in a new platform for athletes. I'm your host, David Swain. We are here for The Common Threads with Nicholas Thompson who is the editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine, former editor of The New Yorker's online presence. He started and sold the publishing platform Atavist. He is a father of three. <laughs> he is a really fast runner who, at 44, hit 234 in the Boston Marathon and then followed that up with a 229 at the Chicago Marathon, which I don't understand as someone who has a hard time breaking eight-minute miles. <laughs> and he started his journalism career by, uh, by being kidnapped in Morocco, and he doesn't look like you ever really looked back from there. Um, so <laughs> welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks for having me here, David. Yeah, of course. And I always start with a really hard question. Which is, uh, what did you have for breakfast this morning? What did I have for breakfast? I had the same thing I have for breakfast pretty much every morning, which is oatmeal with walnuts, almonds, raisins, and a cup of coffee. All right. What time of day do you eat in your breakfast? So my routine is I get up at 6, I run, come back around 7, cook breakfast with the kids or for the kids, like 7.30 to 8. We wake everybody else up in the house by screaming breakfast. Everybody comes down, we have breakfast, and start my work there around 8.30. So that's the morning routine. That is a good routine. I really wish that yeah, I That's good. And it gets... <laughs> and the last few days, I'm up here in the Catskills where I've been since quarantine started. And so it's me, my wife, three kids, my wife's parents. There's seven of us in the house. Um, we have another routine, which is almost every morning we catch a chipmunk on the porch in a little trap we've made because there are too many chipmunks on our porch. And so we carry, one of the kids and I will carry the chipmunk to the top of the road and let it loose uh, away from the house. So that is the other part of the morning routine, chipmunk release. And how long have you been in the Catskills? Did you go there right after, or right as this yeah, was we've been here. Yeah, like March 10th. So maybe March 11th. Like it, it, it all hit and it all blew up around, around then. Uh, and that's when we did it. All right. And yeah. what was the adjustment like the first... It's, you know, it's very, it's interesting, right? So the work adjustment has maybe been less hard than I anticipated. Um, well, of course, when I started, I didn't know how long we'd be working from home, but I knew there would be at least a couple of weeks where I would be doing this. So it turns out it's a little bit easier to run Wired remotely than I thought, right? It's a little easier to run a magazine from Zoom than I expected. Um, it turns out it's a little harder 
for my kids to be without their friends than I expected, right? So they have the advantage. They're incredibly blessed in that they, you know, we have a house with a lawn and put up two soccer goals and basketball hoops, right? So they have a way to be outside. If they'd been in New York, we would have been stuck in a small apartment, you know, looking out the window, um, but never going outside for, for weeks or months. So they have a huge advantage, but it was really hard on them to not get to see their friends and to interact socially. It's such an important part of childhood. They're six, nine and 11. So the three of them, like, thank goodness they have brothers, they play with each other, but that's been a, um, that's been one of the, one of the things to, to manage. And have you, are you at the point now there where you've been able to do stuff outside with any friends or not really we've had a couple we went over and um played soccer in the yard with um some friends we had one play date for my nine-year-old and then tonight we're um big night i live in this tonight tonight's big night (laughs) um i live in this place called bovina um which is a you know a small former cow town as you can probably guess from the name and there are a bunch of like kids who play soccer and adults who play soccer for their dads and so Tonight we're doing the first town soccer game, so that's exciting. Very good. That is I'm exciting. Take, I'm taking my six-year-old and my nine-year-old, and we're going to play tonight. All right. So I want to get into your story, but I also want to acknowledge that this is the first podcast I've done since the important issues that are coming up through George Floyd, and and it's something I'm thinking about a lot from what it means from a perspective of how we as a platform for ProKit give athletes a voice yeah. and making sure we're giving all athletes a voice and, and doing extra there. And to be honest, like we're, we're still, it's very much a work in progress, but you know, just on some of the conversations maybe that have happened within wired and how you think about from a technology publications perspective, you know, how you can, how you can cover this in a way that moves the needle. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, right. So the issues that have been brought to the fore in the reaction to George Floyd's murder, you know, all encompassing, right? So in a way they touch everything, right? But at Wired, you can't, you have to be a little careful. Like people don't come to Wired for analysis of issues outside our area of expertise. So the way we've tried to cover the protests is by looking at the tech angle and looking at the way it intersects with our our stories, right? So the first piece we ran, you know, when the protests got really heated, um, I think they got really heated on the end of the week, I guess that weekend, we ran a really good piece on digital surveillance, right? How it works and how you keep yourself safe. So if you're protesting, right, and you don't want to have your identity learned if somebody arrests you, right, here's how you use Signal, right? So we talked about digital surveillance, how it works, what you can do, um, how to keep yourself safe at a protest, which is very much a wired story, right? And we have the world's best experts on how Signal works, how end-to-end encryption works, why it matters, what it means. And so we feel good writing about that right? We feel good writing about, you know, technologies of police surveillance. We feel good about writing about the way information spreads online. We feel good about writing about memes and disinformation. You know, what we don't want to do is like write a speculative piece on, you know, how Donald Trump will respond, which gets into politics and stuff. That's just not our area of expertise. So the trick is we want to be part of the conversation. We feel strongly about racial injustice. Um, Anti-racism is something everybody wired believes in deeply, but we want to cover it from our, from a perspective where we have things to add. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And I think that's so important of, you know, you watch the reaction across social media and it seems like that is like a good 
progression of people understanding where they can have the most impact and understanding yeah. their strengths, either as a person or an organization and, and using those to make some changes that, that really help. Um, mm -hmm. and I want to get to, I was going to get into this later, but maybe just since we're already on it, managing a team through now like two major moments in history. So, yeah. um, you know, getting the work done is one thing, but like the psychology of managing a team through these situations is also, um, so many things have changed outside of your life, but also within it at the same time. Yeah. I mean, it's very hard, right? So coronavirus hits and it changes the way you run your team in a bunch of ways, right? So first of all, everybody's remote. So that's complicated, right? Secondly, like we're reporters and we can't report, right? We can't go out and talk to people. Like our photographers have to shoot people behind windows, right? So you have to figure out a whole new way of reporting your stories and presenting your stories. The way families work changes, right? So we're now, you know, we were a family of five. Now we're a family of seven because, you know, my in-laws moved in in large part because they wanted to be in a safer environment than they could have been in without us. So, you know, a lot of people, the way their personal lives work, right? For parents, you know, kids have to, a lot of parents are homeschooling their children, right? Which makes it harder to, you know, work nine to five, right? So you have to figure out different pockets of the day that you work, right? So all those things happen with coronavirus. So that's kind of like level one. Level two is, you know, wired from the beginning, approach the coronavirus story, like it's the story of our lifetimes, which it is, right? It'll, you know, for many of our reporters, it'll be the most important thing, most important story they ever work on. And I said that, you know, at a staff meeting, probably you know, March 8th, March 9th, right? Like, um, you know, this is, you know, like you're a foreign correspondent, it's like a war, right? It's, you know, this is the Pulitzer Prizes of 2020 will be awarded to people covering coronavirus, right? The, you know, not that one aspires, not that one structures their life around that, but just to make the point that this is the story of the year. And so we jumped whole hog into it. So then you've got a couple problems. One, you have the, everybody's work-life balance has changed. Two, people are working themselves to the bone, fighting for every story, trying to cover this emotionally intense thing because you're covering death, right? And that's really hard. You're covering sickness and you're, you're afraid, right? So that happens. And then George Floyd happens, right? Um, and suddenly you then have another layer of intensity, a layer of fear. It's emotionally wrenching for watching that video, particularly if you're not white is incredibly hard and incredibly hard emotional strain. Um, you know, seeing some of the reactions uh, can be an incredible emotional strain for everybody. And so suddenly the staff has, you know, all these different pressures, right? The pressure of the way life works now, right? The pressure of reporting on this story where 100,000 people have died and then reporting and living through this moment of racial crisis. So that's just to say it's complicated. And the question is, how do you manage it? You try to, you try to be understanding. You try to think about every individual. You try to think about one's own blind spots. You try to think about how the organization is working and try to do the best you can. I mean, I guess there's a fourth level of pressure in media, which is that our business model has collapsed, right? So most media is supported by advertising. Wired, fortunately, is, has other revenue streams, including subscriptions and reviews, right? If we review best headphones and you buy one, we get a small amount of money. Um, but the central revenue source for the media has collapsed because nobody is advertising, right? Nobody is advertising because they've cut their marketing budgets and also because they don't want their stories to appear next to news about coronavirus or protests. So you're then in the situation where everybody's stressed, 
everybody's working in new environments, everybody's worried, and you're running out of money. So that's where we are. What do I do about that? You try to evolve the business plan and make it as financially viable as you can. And when, when you are working with your team, are people finding more motivation through kind of focusing on the day at hand and the moment at hand? Or is there kind of like a little bit of a North Star vision for like that's mobilizing people towards something bigger? Like, is there a side of the, the spectrum that you kind of fall on? Yeah, I think it's probably, oh, it's probably 60% what's happening today, 40%. Like, let's identify the big trends and try to get to them early. Like, let's identify what industries are being remade. Let's identify how the world will work differently when we're out of this. But also, we need to correct that misinformation that's spreading because of the unclear statement by the World Health Organization. So there's, there's a mix of both. And what about, you know, the, because things are changing so fast, running a magazine that goes to, to the printers, um, you know, weeks ahead of the current yeah. events that could change. Like, how do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, you try to, so when you assign stories about the, you know, you want, I mean, it was very hard for us, our April issue, which came out in the middle of March, and that was all about climate change. And there's no way to put anything about coronavirus in it. It was just, you know, we closed it, you know, before um, any of this hit. Our May issue came out April 15th, meaning we closed it around April 1st. And, you know, that the stories were all filed well in advance, but we added, you know, essays about coronavirus or in, added little things about coronavirus. So, you know, I had a, you know, I wrote a story about my running career in the May issue. You know, and I wrote that draft, I started writing it in November, put it aside for a while, and then we were running a different story about marathons in our, I don't know, I guess our March issue, and then the April issue was climate change, so I kind of put it aside for a couple months. So it was a combination of a story that had been partly written in the late fall and early winter, and then you know, revised through March, and I had a question about whether to put coronavirus in it, how to deal with it, right? So that's complicated. Then to your larger question of how you think about it, what you try to do is if you're going to assign a coronavirus story, you try to assign one that will be timeless, right? That will be relevant, you know, two weeks after it closes and um, ideally three months when somebody might pick up that issue, right? So we just ran a story about, you know, the first look at Moderna, Moderna's vaccine trials. And that story will be totally irrelevant when Moderna has either gotten a vaccine or failed. Um, it'll be kind of irrelevant when somebody else has a vaccine, but we're pretty sure when we assigned it and when we ran it that no one was going to have a vaccine by the time it ran and that Moderna, we, you know, was at most going to have moved to phase two trials. So that's how you time it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's go into your past and, uh, and then we'll come back to some of this stuff, um, sure. on the, on the media side, but, um, the, so the story that you just wrote for people who are listening, it says to, to run my best marathon at age 44, I had to outrun my past. Um, yeah. it was a super moving piece, whether you're a runner or not, um, on, you know, the complexities of, of hitting goals and finding purpose, um, in whatever you're doing. And so maybe just walk us through growing up and, uh, and finding running and journalism. Yeah. So that story, it's really, it's really three stories that I've tried to interweave appropriately. One is the story of my father, extremely complex, interesting life. Other is my, the relationship of my own psychology to running and how it evolved and the moments in life where it gave me confidence, the moments in life where it didn't. And then the third is, 
you're kind of a training guide and a physiological guide and an understanding of what it means to go faster, even as you get older, even as you're well past the point where your body should peak, right? So those are the three lines I tried to intertwine. But it begins, you know, with my introduction to running, which was with my father, when um, he had been an unathletic child whose father, my grandfather, had been a Golden Coast boxing champion, and my grandfather had been, you know, not particularly generous to my father. It had been a huge emotional scar. My father had never felt he was good at anything, you know, any physical activity, and then he kind of discovered running as his, as his father was dying and it became a outlet and a really important emotional um, commitment for him. And he got good at it. And so I, when I was five, he would take me for a run. I remember running a mile with him. I remember running through the streets of Boston with him. I have this weird recollection that I ran three miles with him once, but that just can't be true because I can't, I, you know, I've not a six-year-old, like I can't imagine a six-year-old running three miles. It's not possible, but my dad also left at six. So it couldn't have been after six. So I don't know why I have a memory of running three miles with him. It probably was like a mile and a half. Um, but in any case, so I ran with him. And then in 1982, when Alberto Salazar won the New York Marathon, I watched my dad and he ran it. And it was just after my grandfather had died and my dad did great. He ran a 301. He's trying to break three hours. And uh, I handed him shoes in the middle of the race. I don't know why he needed a new pair of shoes coming off the Queensboro Bridge. Like a bunch of people asked me that afterwards. And I was like, I don't have blisters. But I gave him shoes and a glass of orange juice, which is what they drank before, you know, sports drinks. Um, and uh, so the story starts with my introduction to running there and watching, watching my dad. Yeah. And then you found running in high school yeah. again. And then, and then you had a big pause, right? Yep. Yeah. So the way it worked is, um, right. So my dad, I stopped running. Like I ran from age five to six, right. And then I stopped. <laughs> and then, you know, like you do the time trials in the seventh grade or whatever, but I wasn't that good. I was good, but not, I wasn't even like the best in my school. Um, and then I was good at basketball and soccer. And so I went to Phillips Academy Andover, this big high school in New England. And I showed up thinking I would somehow thinking I would make the varsity basketball team because I'd been recruited to these other schools. And I didn't, I not only didn't make the varsity, I didn't make the JV. And then I didn't make the JV too, right? Like super embarrassing to show up and be like, I'm going to make the varsity. And then you're like, you can't even make like, the worst team, right? You're like literally the only person who doesn't make any team at the whole school. You just, you suck. And so the only school that you, the only sport you could go to at that point, and you have to do sports is track. And so I go walk on the track team and they have me, you know, for some reason, they have me run the two mile probably because I'm thin. Obviously, don't have the build of a shot player. So I go and I'm like, okay. And I run like 11:40 for two miles, and then the moment that is so important and turns out to really be crucial in my story and in everything I think about running is the New England Championships that sophomore year. So I, I guess my PR at that point is 11:35 or so, but the coach enters me in the two mile. And then I run this, it's on this crazy track and I don't understand the splits and somehow I run a 1048. Right. So for runners listening, like a 45 second PR in a two mile race is huge. And it's just flabbergasting. And the realization that I had had in later years is that had the track been standard and had I known the splits, I would have been too afraid. Right. I needed somehow, I needed someone or something to trick me into running that fast. Cause I couldn't run that fast without the trick. And the trick was the track. And so that was what led me to go faster. So that's a very important moment. From there, it's like a linear progression. I get better through high school. You know, I win the New England championships, mile and two mile. I'm 
I'm like pretty good, but not you know, super elite. I go to Stanford where I'm, you know, in the recruiting class of a team that wins the national championship, but I'm the worst kid in the recruiting class, like pretty good, but I'm not like Stanford good. And so I run for a year and then I quit. Um, and then I quit until basically my late twenties, right? I run a couple marathons in between here and there. And I run like a 318, a 340, you know, I'm not particularly good. And then at about age 30, this is where it gets interesting. Again, I run, I run a 257. So I finally beat my dad's time. And then I run a 243, right? And I get from 257 to 243, basically by joining a club team. And so I run that 243 and it's extreme elation, right? Because remember as a kid, I thought breaking three was, you know, the insurmountable barrier because I'd watched my dad run a 301. So when I ran that 257, I was like, I've made it. And then I run 243 and it's like, holy cow. But then after the 243, like almost immediately afterwards, like in a case, it's a matter of days or weeks, I'm diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And so that's age, I think it's age 30. And then I go through this, you know, horrible series of multiple surgeries and radiation therapy. And um, it takes a long time to get back to feeling good and healthy again. And then, but then, you know, two years later, I run another marathon and I run it like exactly the same. I think I had run like 243.51 at 30. And then at age 32, I run 243.43 or something, right? Like I'm like five, 10 seconds faster. And it's an incredible feeling. Then the next 10 years, I run marathons basically every fall and they're all like identical, right? Like literally controlling for the course and the weather, they're basically 243s, right? So, you know, I don't know, I run Boston, which is slightly harder and a really crappy day in 246. I run one really hilly marathon at 248, but I run like four New York marathons in 242. Um, I break 241 in Philadelphia, which is a much flatter course on a perfect day. Basically everything is a 242 or a 243. And then, um, and then when I turn 43, you know, I begin this new training routine. I get a call from Nike. I go through this new training. And then it takes me down to 229. And so suddenly it's like the question that animated the piece I wrote, or at least that animated the training part of the piece was, how come for 10 years I couldn't break 240? Like I literally broke it once in maybe 15 races where I showed up thinking I was going to break 240. And then how come... In one year, I was able to go 243, 238, 234, 229. Like, what the hell happened, right? So that was the idea of the story. And without going to read the story, can you break down a little bit of the, I mean, we everybody has this, a lot of people have a question about, you know, how much of speed or performance, both in sport and in work and in life is genetic versus some combination of training or self-belief or mental, like, and walk us through a little bit of like, you know, cause then all you change your training, you had access to a great coach at Nike and you know, you started you know, on the training side reading, like you started incorporating some new types of workouts, some different lengths, some strength training, right. That you had never done. Yeah. But, you know, like, and then on the other side, you know, you've, you've got to overcome the same mental barrier that you did when you were a sophomore in high school to run that. Yep. And so what, what have you learned? And yeah, there, okay. There are about a thousand things yes. I learned, right? So I'll just go through the, why don't I do this? I'll do it this way. There's 10 small things and one big thing. So yep. I'll list the small things and then I'll list the big thing, right? So here are the small things that helped me. And then I'll get to the big thing. I wore the Vaporfly shoes. Those help. 
right? clearly having lighter shoes with a metal plate helps you recover, helps you go faster. Like, uh, you know, there, some people perform significantly better in them. Some perform slightly better. I definitely benefit from them for sure. I learned some new things about diet, right? I drink beet juice every morning. I was, as you can tell from what I had for breakfast, I started keeping a pretty strict diet. You know, more important, I started doing more structured speed workouts, right? So when I was training on my, mostly on my own in my thirties, I would do fartlek runs. I would do tempo runs, but suddenly I had like very specific workouts where every Tuesday, my Nike coach would tell me to run, you know, I don't know, do eight by 800 at 236, right? Like you would get some very specific goal and I'm goal oriented and, you know, pretty organized. And if I agree to do something and somebody tells me to do it, like I file my stories on time, I hit the, I do the workouts the coach tells me to do, right? So speed workouts, tempo runs, long runs, right? So much more structured, structured workouts in a way that's, that was pretty important, right? I'll start using Strava, right? A good way to like run against yourself and to understand like what your peers are doing. It's good to actually have, um, have that. I started using a heart rate monitor. That was, you know, of the interventions, this I think is already made one, that's the most important, right? It allows you to really track your effort, both in that it lets you know when you're going too hard and it lets you know when you're going too easy, right? It allows you to see improvement over time, right? Oh, I ran, you know, six miles at 545 pace three weeks ago. And today I ran six miles at 545 pace, but my heart was beating, you know, two beats per minute slower. Like, yeah, that's great. That's actually like a significant improvement, right? So I had a heart rate monitor. I started doing some strength, right? Like doing planks and pull-ups and, um, you know, set of exercises, flexibility, dynamic stretching, right? That, that, that probably helped. Um, I became a little more structured about it in general, right? So I was, I have a much stricter sleep regimen than I had before, right? I pretty much go to bed at the same time and get up at the same time every day. What are those um, times? Right now it's 1030 and six. Okay. So I will pretty much, I will stop work and go upstairs and, you know, I pretty much stop work at 1030 and I'm usually asleep by 1045 and then I get up at six. Right. Yeah. And that's, and then, you know, it's a pretty good night's sleep and I feel pretty good. And, but if I don't get that, I'm like, it takes harder for my body to recover. So those are all the small things, right. And there are probably a couple other small things. The big thing, and I didn't even realize this until I was well into the race was basically the same thing happened to me in this training as happened in that Moses Brown track. And I don't know why exactly, and I don't know when exactly, but somehow my psychology switched and I no longer was obsessed with breaking 240 and I no longer was obsessed at breaking 242 or running that speed. Like somehow I convinced myself that I could go a whole, you know, a standard deviation better, right? And the, the moment of self-discovery in the writing process. I remember I was running across the Brooklyn bridge and this question kept going through my head. Like, why, how can I run 230 at 44 and 244 at 30? Like, and then I realized it basically had to do with my sickness. And that when, you know, for the 10 years after I recovered from being sick, I wasn't trying to run the fastest. I wasn't trying to be the fastest version of Nick that there could be. I was trying to run as fast as I had run before I got sick. Right. And like, at some deep psychological level, I, all I had cared about in my running was going as fast as I had done before I had gotten cancer. And so somehow I got out of that, right? Somehow all this training, all those other interventions, the coaching got me to believe that I could go faster, it tricked me into believing that I could go faster, whatever it did. And then that opened up this whole new avenue of 
running and like took me to 229. Now, where could it take me eventually? Like, I have no idea. And we're in quarantine, there are no races. So maybe this is the end, but I'm really glad I got that experiment. And, you know, kind of miraculously dropped 15 minutes. Of course, it makes you wonder like, huh, what could I have run if I'd been, yeah. if I'd done all this stuff when I was 29? Yeah. Um, and talk a little bit about how, so you've got a big job, you've got kids, yeah. you know, and, you know, I know I'm also a fan of, I've always commuted to work by foot or bike and oh, really? awesome. yeah, it's just like, oh my gosh, what a good way to reset your brain and also force some consistency. But, yeah. um, but talk about how you've just building in the structure for this to happen and, and also doing it, you know, on the career side, but also with a family. Yeah. So the way, you know, both of those things are tricky and interesting. So like I have a lot of life hacks to make running work with my particular life. Right. So the principal one is I run commute, right? So I, I drop my kids off at school. I put on a little waist pack or a backpack with my cell phone, my keys, any clothes I need. I run to the gym. It's about four and a half miles. I shower, I change, go to the office, right? doesn't take that much longer than taking the subway. Um, I run home in reverse. And if I'm doing a tempo run, um, I will do it as part of that, right? So like my run commute typically before quarantine took me over the Brooklyn Bridge. So I would run, you know, I like run tempos on the Brooklyn Bridge, right? Or I'd run them on the West Side Bike Path or I'd run them in Prospect Park, which is like the beginning of the run. So I would incorporate the tempo runs and the speed workouts into the run commute. So the advantage of that is... It's not taking additional time or it's not taking much additional time because you have to get to work anyway. Um, and you have to do it, right? So one of the risks when you have a busy job and a busy life is like, today I don't need to run, right? I don't, I don't need to run today because, you know, because it's raining, because it's cold, because I've got a, you know, big, big podcast I've got to be on, right? I need to focus my, like there's always, there are always 50 reasons not to do it. But if you lock it into your commute or you lock it into something, you're much less likely to, you know, seed to any of those 50 reasons. I also, I try to use my running time when I'm not working out essentially as work, right? I listen to technology podcasts. I listen to books about technology. I listen to stuff that is helpful for my job, right? So I'm in a way it's not time lost to work. So then there's the question of family, right? So like, I hate the idea that I would run at a moment when I could be playing with my kids, right? And so in a way it's my life is structured. I drop them off at school and then I'm, I'm running you know, here, I'm awake before they're awake and I'm running. Um, you know, I try to incorporate a lot of my cross training is, I mean, my real cross training is I play soccer with my kids. As you probably got from those yeah. first couple questions. Like I play, now that we're in quarantine, I play like hours of soccer a day with my children, right? Like, I don't know what the cross training benefits are, but they must be substantial. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I'm playing with them, you know, all the time and trying to take on as much of, you know, the burden, the family burden as as I can. Um, and my wife, you know, my wife understands it. She's a professional dancer and has a full-time job as a professor. Like we trade off, we have a lot of routines. We have a lot of things we do. And sometimes it doesn't work like any parent knows. Um, you know, I mentioned, I mentioned at the end of the story, right? Like, you know, one of the other things that the piece made me think about is like, how did my dad get to running? Well, he got to running as like a rebellion against his father, right? because his father had made him feel bad about sports. How did I get to running? Well, it's the opposite, right? It was like following my father, right? Because it made me feel good about running. So what is my running? What effect is it going to have on my children? Will it be like, 
you know, my grandfather's effect on my father? Will they be like, I hate running. I don't want anything to do with this. Like, are they going to write a tell all memoir about their, you know, weird obsessed, you know, oatmeal <laughs> eating father who like made them feel shitty. Um, or are they going to become runners themselves too? And like, well, I'll be drinking beet juice together in 15 years. Right. I don't know. And I hope it's the latter, but you know, you can't, you know, as a, every parent listening will know, you don't know how you're influencing your children. So, you know, my grandfather didn't know how he was influencing my dad. My dad didn't know how he was influencing me. And I don't know how I'm influencing them, but I hope it's benign. Yeah. I think about this all the time as a parent, but like you went to a great high school, arguably like the best or one of the best colleges in the, in the world. You know, you've worked at some of the most respected organizations out there. Like, how do you, how have you thought about that progression in terms of what's, what's important to you and how you've made those choices? I mean, and which, I mean, that, there's a lot of interesting questions yeah. embedded in that. What do you, what do you mean specifically? So choosing to go to Stanford, choosing to go to the New Yorker and Wired, um, is it because that's where you could have the most impact, where you'd be challenged the most? Like you talked about, um, you know, showing up, you could have gone to many schools and shown up and been the top runner and you went to Stanford where not only you're not going to be the top runner, but academically, like anyone being the top at anything at Stanford is pretty hard. Um, so yeah. you've consistently made choices where you're definitely challenging yourself, just at least from the outside. Um, and I, I think about that as a parent, right? So myself, like, does that create pressure for your kids to follow in that footstep? Like, it's, it's interesting. You know, I hadn't really thought about, like, I hadn't thought about, is there a parallel between the choice of going to Andover and the choice of going to Stanford and the choice to go work at the New Yorker, right? Like it had always just, it was apparent that, you know, what you do is if you have the opportunity, you go to the you best and it. biggest place you can and try to do the best you can there, right? Like, is it better to be, you know, the number nine recruit at Stanford or the number one or two recruit at Williams, right? Equally great academic schools. It just, it always seemed natural and like kind of unchallenged to go and yeah, you know, be the, try to go to Stanford. Right. And sometimes it doesn't work, right. Clearly my running career at Stanford was, you know, total failure. So I don't know. I just feel like I've always, if possible, made that choice to go. And I, you know, as if, when I was a journalist, I always wanted to go to the New Yorker. Right. And then, you know, when I, they, I was fortunate enough to be offered a job, jumped at it. Right. Yeah. Will it create pressure for my kids? Definitely. Definitely. It'll create pressure for my kids. Right. And you know, when my kids, it's going to be an interesting moment. I mean, my, my wife went to Stanford too. Like when it's time for them to go to college, like who the hell knows? And like, you all, all, you all are always measuring yourself against your parents and you are always seeing where they succeed. I mean, this is the other one of the subtexts with my dad, right? So my dad went to Andover. <laughs> I mean, he grew up very differently, right? So I grew up in, you know, a, a very loving family in a, you know, nice neighborhood outside of Boston. He grew up in a very difficult family and moving around, but the central years in Oklahoma. And he like ran away from home to get to Andover, right? Which is very different from mine. But from that point forward, he went to Andover, went to Stanford, and then he won a Rhodes Scholarship and went to Oxford. And that put pressure on me. And then when I didn't win a Rhodes Scholarship, it was like, seems like an absurd thing to, you know, have pressure on your back because nobody does. Um, but, you know, you measure yourself against your parents. And so, when my kids come along, you know, when they, you know, get to the next level of their education, I don't know. I mean, my hope is that they aren't measuring themselves against me, that they are finding their own 
pass, you know, that they're succeeding to the extent that they, to however they measure success um, in whatever ways they want. And as long as they're generous to other people and curious about the world, I'll be happy. Yeah. And, and on like the, you know, you've reached obviously great heights and running and, and in your career. So, um, managing the stress of that and also the self-belief to keep taking things on, like you're not just editing anymore, you're speaking and on big stages and you're, um, you know, there's a lot more to it, but continuing to put yourself out there. Like I'm assuming those can't all be easy, right? Like learning to speak the first time you go up on the stage is, is, is a hurdle for some people. I I feel like that's easy. I mean, like, or not easy, but that's just pleasure, right? Like, you know, taking new opportunities that come, whether it's the opportunity to like go on TV or go speak, like that's easy. The stress is, you know, the stress is in some way, you know, the reflection or the inverse of that, which is the most important thing that I can do right now professionally is make Wired succeed and make it, you know, make it the best magazine in the world about how technology is changing what it means to be human. And you don't want time. Like I get stressed and I think like, wait, am I, this, this time I'm spending running, is that making me less good at editing Wired? Right? Like that's, those are the stresses. It's like, there isn't a stress in taking on a new challenge or a new opportunity. It is, but there is a time management stress of the, wait, should I be, should I be doing this speech or should I be spending more time with my children? Should I like, do I need to run this workout? Right? Like that's, that is a, that is a stress, right? So when you, but with anybody, like when you have a lot of things that you try to do at a high level, they all take time. And there is always a question of whether you are spreading yourself too thin. So that is definitely, you know, not just a source of stress, but a source of sort of constant self analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like trying to identify what you're, you know, what is one genuinely good at? Like what can one contribute to the world in a real way? And what can one not? And like trying to be self-aware about that. And there's some things I'm good at and other things I'm less so and like adulthood is the process of figuring that out yeah on on the wired side um I have a couple questions but you know one is just being at a publication that has navigated the change in the media landscape at least from the outside it looks like you've navigated it better than most where do you see things changing and how people consume information and yeah and where does that you know really really where does that go for for a publication but also i think my meta question is more about like where is technology taking things well you know the way so the way people consume information is right i mean it just becomes ever more dispersed right so at first they read a print magazine and then you build a website, which mostly drives people to the print magazine, but then the website becomes an entity of itself with its own publishing norms. And then social platforms come around and they initially are just a way to drive people to either the print magazine or the web publication, but then they become their own publishing platforms with their own norms, right? And then they expand, right? And then new ones are formed. And so publishing over the last 15 years has been this, you know, the need to recognize where people are consuming content, the need to understand the rules of those particular platforms, and then the need to figure out both how you can be a participant and then God willing make money off of it. Right. And so there's some platforms where it's easy to be a participant. There's some platforms where it's easy to make money. They're not that many where it's possible to do both. But so the trick of somebody in my job is to 
figure out how to prioritize. Okay, so this is how we're going to approach Instagram. This is how we're going to try to make money off Instagram. Or maybe we're not. We're just going to try to, you know, create value in other ways. Or this is, okay, this is how we'll make money off YouTube. And this is how we'll use YouTube to drive people to platforms that we can monetize at a higher rate, right? So that's this, there's this constant moving your time and energy around. It's a little bit like related to the question I was just, you know, we were just talking about, about how one spends your, how do you spend your day, right? Um, you know, how do you spend your time? If you have a small number of people who work at a place like Wired, how much time are you going to spend on YouTube? How much time are you going to spend on Twitter? How much time are you going to spend publishing just on Wired.com? Will you be part of Apple News, right? All of those fascinating questions that you, there is no, there is no simple answer to any of it. So that's part of an answer. Then the question is, where does it go next? And, you know, it's possible that the, you know, the trend we've seen is more and more of the content, you know, being read on aggregation platforms, right? Like being read like on Apple News, inside the Facebook News tab, inside of, right? Even just inside of Twitter where you're not reading the story, you're just reading either headlines or you're reading screenshots, right? Uh, basically aggregation platforms then accumulating all the content and making all the money and publishers not making any money, but needing to participate because you can't just stay away from them all. Um, so one question is, will it just continue in that trend? Will all the time go to the aggregation platforms? And then the second question is, okay, so what is the next format in which we read? Like, you know, will virtual reality become the next platform where, you know, publishers need to exist? Will it be, will the transition to video, has it stopped? Will it continue, right? So those are the other questions we think through. What is my answer? What we're trying to do, what we're trying to do is to make wired.com the website, and then all like the affiliated apps, the Get Wired app, make those feel essential to a certain number of people. And if you can make those things feel essential to a certain number of people, you can survive financially, right? If we can get a million people to pay us $40 a year because they feel that is essential, then we can run this business. Um, if we can't, then we can't. Mm -hmm. So if you're listening, please subscribe to Wired. Yeah. This is a tactical question, but getting this is a somewhat selfish question, but also I think for a lot of people interesting or listening who are pro athletes or entrepreneurs in a related space, like everyone is grappling with that what you the time management part of do you create your own content? Do you create yeah. content for the other platforms? How do you prioritize? Where how do you create a business on top of it? And um a lot of people haven't had, you know, you've spent your career in this watching and testing and kind of moving and hopefully innovating on it. And yeah, um, it's such a, I mean, even for us with ProKit, so like we've essentially created another platform, right? And one of the things that we think about a lot is um, it for it to really provide value, we can't be asking people to do something else that feels like added pressure. It needs to be creating immediate value, um, into, mm -hmm. into their lives or their work. So becoming essential as a media platform and what have you learned about how that, how you get, get to that state? The easy, but also hard answer is you just have to be good, right? You have to be, it has to be different, right? So there's this constant, what the internet has done is it's created infinite supply, right? It is. So anybody can, you know, make their own, can tell their own story, can post their own pictures, can make their own magazine, right? Like anybody can write anything they want on media. And so if you aren't different and good, you're doomed, 
right? And in the old days, when there were limitations on supply, you could publish stuff that wasn't good, still have a business and still have people read it, right? Because you had a monopoly, like you had, there was one newspaper in an area and you could, whatever went in that newspaper, like people would read it, right? And there are advantages to that. And there may be some civil, civic advantages to that, but it allows you to not be good. Now, if you publish stories that aren't good and don't get people's attention and don't get people to share them and don't get people to read to the end, you're toast, right? So, okay, well, that's kind of obvious, right? It's the same thing, like if you're going to be an athlete, you have to be good. But so what that means is you have to figure out what you're actually good at, and right? So for an athlete, like if you're a runner, you have to really figure out whether you should be running the 800 or the 10,000, right? Or maybe you should be doing the pole vault, right? Maybe you should be a soccer player, right? Like you figure out your soccer player, maybe you're a midfielder, maybe you're an attacker, right? Maybe you're a defender, maybe you're a left defender, right? You have to figure out, and if you're a left defender, maybe what you're good is you're an attacking left defender, right? You have to figure out like where you fit in, right? And so with Wired, right, that's like, okay, so what can we do that nobody else does and how do we do that? And then you do that for a while and then you succeed at it and other people copy you, so you have to evolve, right? So it's this constant challenge of identifying what, you know, what are the stories that are not being told right now? What is the way in which they're not being told? And which are the ones that we can tell better than anybody else? So that is the constant challenge for our editors. And I think it's fairly similar, you know, to an athlete choosing their athletic career or choosing or figuring out what their niche will be on, you know, if they want to create a content platform, they're going to be, you know, if they want Instagram to be part of their, um, you know, part of their business, part of their life, like how, like, what is the persona that like, what is the approach that they should take that will make them different? And on, um, the tech industry through over the last decade has obviously gone through, um, a major shift in perception and in many ways, um, loss of trust, um, especially at my former employer. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, Wired is about technology and how it Im- impact. I forget your soundbite that you started with the impact on humans, but you know, that for better or worse, do you as the editor in chief of Wired believe in the good of technology and how effective with the state of the media industry, do you worry about the ability, not at Wired, but at a meta level to be able to hold kind of the players accountable? Yeah, those are two, you know, sort of essential questions, if not existential questions. Um, On the question of technology, I consider myself something of a technology optimist and that I really do believe it can be used for good and that the harms we've seen are, you know, mistakes and myopia and like, you know, that Facebook can do an extraordinary amount of good and Facebook can do an extraordinary amount of evil and the you know, the way it comes down on one side or the other basically depends on how the financial incentives are set up inside the company, how the algorithm works, how people use it, how the company responds. Like there are a bunch of human choices that are made along the way that, you know, either turn the ship towards like sail in the evil direction or turn the ship to sail in the not evil direction, right? And there are a hundred different vectors of it. So it's not a simple thing, but like, I genuinely believe that technology can do wonderful things. I mean, look at this podcast here. We're talking like from my attic, you know, in the Catskills with like a very strong connection, um, you know, going over these fiber optic cables that have been laid in the land and allow us to communicate. And then there'll be a whole set of other amazing technological things that'll make our voices go to anybody, which is an extraordinary 
democratic and wonderful thing. Um, so I am optimistic, though I'm also you know, quite realistic about some of the harms that have been made. On the second question, the media, it just tears my heart apart, the, you know, the loss of trust in the media. And some of it is because you know, our president has, you know, he likes to control the narrative and there are very few threats to the narratives that he creates. And one of the threats is the media. Um, and so he likes to tear down the media, right? And many of his supporters agree. You know, another part of the reason is the creation of social media, which has allowed, you know, which is, you used to not read individuals, you would read publications and publications would have filters and levels and, you know, hot water would get cool and cool water would get heated, right? And now you're seeing everybody out on social media and then social media has their own dynamics where you can say 49 sensible things and one stupid thing and everybody will see the one stupid thing. And so suddenly you have reporters and they say one stupid thing and 49 sensible things. And that's one reporter out of 50, but suddenly of those 2,500 things that were said, one of which was dumb, that's the only thing that is seen. And so everybody has a perception that that institution is now dumb, right? And so you have this dynamic where the social media platforms and the way the algorithms work are driving people to their extreme positions and like activating their lizard brains. And then you have individuals untethered from their institutions, like using their lizard brains and saying things. And it makes the public not trust us as unbiased and fair arbiters of what is happening in the world. And so trust in media declines, has been declining. It's increased slightly since the pandemic, thank goodness, but not as much as I was hoping it would. And that makes it, you know, makes us less essential and I think makes society work less well. Like the ideal media would be, you know, one where, you know, there's a real diversity of opinions and viewpoints and ways of looking at the world, but everybody has sort of core values about pursuing truth and seeing stories and issues from all angles. And then they're trusted and then people share the best stuff and not the worst stuff, but that's not where we are. So I can try to do my little bit to, you know, try to reverse those trends, but it definitely, definitely, that definitely keeps me awake at night. All right. On that note, what are you, and we won't keep you for too much longer because I know you've got a, you've got a, a day job. Um, on, I gotta go play my town soccer game tonight. Oh, so I gotta true. get all my work done got, by six. Yeah, you do. I will, we'll let you get that, let that going. But on, um, you know, where, where you get your information from, you know, like what are you kind of reading, watching, listening to um, yeah. right now? That's a good, that's a good question. So in my morning routine, um, I listen to, I listen to the daily, I listen to the New Yorker radio hour. I listen to NPR news. I listen to today explained, I try to listen to the news in Spanish, you know, they improve my Spanish a little bit. So noticias in Espanol. Um, I listen to Reply All, I listen to the A16Z podcast, right? So I sort of rotate those podcasts on my, on my runs. Um, and then I come in and, you know, I, as you know, I do read Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. I look at what my friends are posting. I'm trying to read everything we publish at Wired, you know, soon after it gets published. Um, the other sites I check for technology news, and I don't do all of this every day. I'm not one of those insane people yeah. who, you know, I'm going to list 50 sources and know that like six of them I check on a given day. Uh, but the places I would go for technology news would be Hacker News, Google News tab, right? I'll go, go to Google News and I have it filtered for technology news. So I'll check that. I'll check Reddit slash, um, Reddit slash tech. Um, and I'll read The Atlantic. 
Um, I read the Times and the Post and the Journal, information. There are a bunch of newsletters I really like. Subscribe to Ben Thompson's newsletter, Benedict Evans's newsletter, um, China AI newsletter, so I can understand what's happening with China and artificial intelligence. Um, so I'm reading those newsletters and then, you know, I'm going through Twitter and links and stories that are curated. And then um, every day my, I do a series for LinkedIn and also for Facebook where I talk about the most interesting thing in tech. And so my assistant will curate uh, about middle of the day. Here are the five most important stories in tech. So she has a whole list of news sources. Oh, I go to tech meme too. She uses that as well. And so then I have a list of the five biggest stories in tech and I'll choose one and I'll talk about it for my little podcast or two minute video series, um, which I post on LinkedIn and Facebook. So those are my news sources. And then I try to, you know, I'm trying to read books um, and uh, I'm reading Why We Run tonight. Bernard Henrik, I think is how you pronounce his name right now. Um, I just finished Bill McKibben's Long Distance. I've, you know, after running my, after writing my running story, I was trying to, I should have done it before I wrote it, but I'm doing it afterwards. It's reading some of the classic literature on, um, on running. So, you know, I try to read the, try to read the books at night. So that's the, that's the mix. And of course the New Yorker, right? And I don't know if I mentioned the New Yorker, but I love reading the New Yorker both in print and on the web. I adored that place. I spent six years there, love all the people there and uh, their stuff's awesome. All right. Um, and where can people find you on the internet? You just mentioned linked. We can put it all in the notes, but I'm pretty easy to find, yeah. right? So I'm NX Thompson on Twitter. Yeah. I'm same on Instagram. I'm Nicholas Thompson on LinkedIn, Nicholas Thompson on Facebook, Strava. I'm, yeah. And I'm nickthompson.com has a list to, you know, if you want to be a completist and find me on Periscope, right? It's got all those links there. All right. And last question, because it's relevant for this. So on the tech side for fitness and health. Yeah. Anything new you're using or paying attention to? Any trends yeah, let's watching? see. So what am I using? So I'm using sort of, I listed all the gear I use. So in my wired stories, there's a list of the gear, right? So I use these RunScribe pods to measure pronation and balance. A Garmin running dynamics pod I wear on my waistband. that will tell me like left foot, right foot. Um, Scotia heart rate monitor, which will tell me my heart rate. Garmin 935 on my wrist. Um, I've been trying to run in these Vibram. You know, I do try to do a little barefoot running every week. So I've been running in some Vibram shoes because um, barefoot you can a lot of, you know, you don't want to get a tick on your foot or step on a rock. So I've been running the Vibram shoes. I got sent this bike, an AI bike by uh, Carol, um, which is like a 10 minute workout where it's like you bike slowly for three minutes and then bike incredibly hard for 10 seconds and slow for three minutes. Um, and then it measures how you're doing and changes the resistance. And what's fun about that, I've only had it set up for like two weeks. So I've done it maybe five times is my kids love it. And so they're like measuring their wattage output. Um, my 11 year old just beat my records. So I, <laughs> I don't know what's going on there. Um, I'm, I like, I gotta, I gotta figure out how that happened. I didn't think that was gonna happen for a little while longer. So I'm doing a little bit on that, on that. But the main, like the main athletic stuff I do is I play a lot of soccer and a uh, decent amount of basketball and a fair amount of catch with the children. Very good. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining. Thanks so much, David. It was really fun to talk with you. All right. Take care. Have an awesome day. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Common Threads. If you liked the show, please tell your friends and followers on social media and encourage them to tune in. You can also leave a rating or review to help new listeners discover the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you're listening on. Or send me feedback directly on Twitter at David underscore Swain. And then head over to join our new platform for athletes at theprokit.com.